You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello and welcome back to Stories from Real Life, and I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards. This episode is part two of my interview with Chris Buckley, a former Klansman who now helps people escape hate and extremist groups. Here's the rest of my interview with Chris. What are you most proud of that you've done? Well, any, at any point in your life, I'm not going to limit it until after the Klan, but any, at any point in your life, what, what are you most proud of? Man, there, there's a lot of things that I've been able to do that I just, I never thought that I would be able to, man. Like, uh, I thought I was just always bound by so many stipulations in life. You know, you'll never, you'll never get that girl. You're not on her level. You'll never own a home. You're not financially stable enough. You don't, you'll never get that job because you're not qualified. You'll never be able to do this because you're a felon and, you know, all of those things you're proud of when you, when you, you know, overcome an obstacle, man, like all the obstacles that I've overcome in my life, most of which of my own making. Um, but just the, like when I sit back and, and, you know, being new year's, uh, you know, like, you know, we're right, right after new year's here. So, I mean, like one of the things that I want to do is sit and look back at the year in my rear view. And, you know, I, I just, man, we, we became first time homeowners this year. Um, Congratulations. My wife, yeah. Yeah. That's something that that's a, a, a goal. It's everybody's goal in life. And I, I achieved that. Um, and it's, it's the most amazing feeling to, to just watch my kids become the awesome little human beings that they are and to, <laughs> to see just how much they still have to teach me. Um, I, I'm proud of that. Uh, I got a letter from, uh, from Bill Clinton. I didn't, I didn't tell you that. Wow. Yeah. Um, with an wow. authentic signature. Nice. Yeah. So I, I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, what, I'm proud of the, so I went to the Clinton global initiative this year and I kind of okay. talked about extremism and, and de-radicalization, my story. And, uh, turns out Bill and Hillary and Chelsea were there and, uh, you know, they, they watched all of the, all of the sessions and it, it just touched Mr. Clinton's heart so much that he decided to, to, to send me a letter, you know, I mean, uh, I remember that's, nice. that's really nice. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's something to be proud of. I'm proud of the certifications that I've gotten, and I'm proud of my wife um, for for all the hard work she's done. She's just, you know, she got her CNA degree or certificate. She's uh, about a quarter of the way through her associate's degree for medical assistant, uh, looking to become a trauma nurse. Um, yeah, I'm just man, like to narrow it down to to what am I proud of, man? Like. I, the humbleness in me tells me I shouldn't say this, but the changes in my life have taught me that it's okay. Like I'm proud of me. I'm proud of me. Well, you should be. Change is hard. There, there's no question. Change is hard. And to make some fundamental changes to something as 
destructive, not just to others, but to yourself as, as hate, that's something you should be proud of. Yeah, man. I agree. All right. So if you, if you could do your whole life over again, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? Oof. You know, I think as human beings, we dwell on this conversation like far too much regret and and looking back and it's like man i wish that i'd have done this differently i wish i would have changed that and you know i think that plays in like there's some victimhood mentality that plays in there a little bit and you know i i I just have a different outlook on it you know all of the bad things that have happened to me in my life all of the bad that i've done all of the good that's happened to me, all of the good that I've done. If I change one of those things, then it could change my entire life. You know, like, like I might not have the same children I have. I might not be the same person I am mentally, physically, emotionally. I might not have the same wife. I might not be the person that I am right now in this moment. And, I don't know that I would change anything, man. Like, like everything that's happened has happened for a reason. And, and those things that have happened have allowed me to, to have the, the qualifications to do the work that I did, you know, and, and to help the individuals that I've helped. If I had never been molested, I might not have ever, you know, gotten to the point that I'm at now, you know, I mean, it might've happened to somebody else instead of me. And, and then where am I at? You know, like I I would take that, that suffering and pain every day to know that it didn't happen to somebody else, Hmm. because if it didn't happen to me, it would have happened to somebody else. That's just the way it is. I mean, joining the clan, like, do I regret that? Absolutely. Is that a, a smudge on my on my life that I wish that I could erase? Yeah. Would I, though? If I did, what are the consequences of erasing that? So I think that when you weigh all of that, not to say that, no, I wish that I would have never been in the clan. Like, that's... The, yeah, that's a that's a heavy statement. But given the opportunity to actually erase that, what does that change farther down the line? You know about who you are and 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 what you become. Does that all change? Do 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 I get that? So I guess the question is: is if I could go back and change things, do I get to remain the same person I am today? And I think that when you look at the reasons surrounding why I got involved in a hate group. Or, or extremist ideologies. Those are the things that I would probably go back and change that wouldn't have allowed me to join that extreme. It, it would have left me not vulnerable to that ideology. And if I wasn't vulnerable to that ideology, like where would I, I might be better off than I am today. More than likely I would, you know, but if it wouldn't be a hundred percent guarantee that I got to keep my wife and my kids, I don't, I don't know that I, I could change anything then. Okay. All right. So most people are probably relieved that you chose to leave the clan, but, uh, but not everybody is. When was the last time you were called a race trader or a sellout on social media? 
man, I get those daily, daily. Like I open my, 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 my Twitter and usually there's some generic account with like a bunch of numbers as their, as their name. And it'll be like, Hey, you, you race trader, you, you know, a bunch of other stuff that I'm just, you know, you can pick them, you can pick out whatever you want. And I've been called it. Uh, and I just, I understand that that is just a way for them to garner a response from you. Uh, I ignore it. I drive on every now and then I'll get back into my old ways a little bit. And, uh, you know, like I heard a, a saying, uh, I think Jordan Peterson is, uh, is where I heard it. He said, it's, it's, it's he, I don't think he was the one that said it, but he re- He's, he's where I heard it, but it said it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And uh, I felt that, man, because, like, I, I'm, I'm getting older. I'm, I'm not as quick as I used to be, but damn it if I'm not just as deadly and violent if I need to be, right? Um, so I, every now and then I'll throw a little comment back and be like, well, you know, pull up. Here's the address. And, uh, yeah, of course, nobody ever does that. Do you actually send the address? I mean, yeah. I mean, if I if I'm feeling froggy, sometimes I do. Sometimes, you know. I mean, I haven't sent it at the new address yet because of my okay, wife. Let me let me let me stop you right now. Let me advise against that. Yeah, well, I <laughs> that's mean, not like, a good I idea. <laughs> I I just I, I don't I don't allow them to to chain me into fear anymore. Fear is what got me into those groups. Right, like xenophobia, supremacy, like all of that is 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 a bondage of fear, and I'll be damned if I'm going to live the rest of my life in fear from from them. Right, like like I just I don't I don't put stock in it, man. I ain't worried about none of those guys, man. Like really, I mean, it, like just the fact that we spent the last five minutes talking about me not being scared of them is like it, it gives them too much attention as it is. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's move on to something else. From your experience directly, or from what you've been told through your associations, do you think some people think they can be white supremacists without being racist? I mean, isn't that what all racist people say? It's like, oh, I'm not racist. I got black friends. Like, that's the number. For, that's the first thing they say. Uh, well, I don't mind if so and so dates a black girl, but I wouldn't do it. Like that's that's racist, right? Uh, I think that it's like you can say whatever you want, but it doesn't make it true, right? You cannot be a supremacist without being a racist because. You can't believe that you are superior to every other race, creed, ethnicity out there without believing them to be inferior. Right. Right? So it's it's an oxymoron at its finest. It's like the the textbook definition of, of an oxymoron. And usually the person that says that is a moron as well. I'm curious about this. Do, do Klansmen do anything together socially other than their Klans activities, burning crosses and wearing their, their hoods and robes? Do they do they do anything socially? I mean, we used to have a Taco Tuesday. Um, no, I mean, I think about this. Like, like yeah, I mean, 
it is really uncomfortable to be a bigot and a racist and and just a hate monger around other people that aren't like that, right? The majority of people have a very diverse friends group, right? And to be that one oddball that's like, ah, I just hate everybody, you know, like like nobody wants to be around that. So you find yourself kind of hanging with the people that reaffirm your belief system. Um, because of that, doesn't mean they, you know, extremists and, and racists don't like to do the same things that other people like to do. Like they like going bowling, they like going fishing, they like going camping and going to parties. And it just turns out that the parties they go to are all white people or if you're a black supremacist because you can't have one and not the other we we know that both exist right so they'll be mm-hmm. with those you know what i mean like like they will flock to their feathers right um like i mean yeah they they do all kinds of stuff i mean most of it is centered around hatred and bigotry though you know uh, like they'll have a barbecue but the topic of the barbecue won't be summer fun it'll be like why Jews are bad you know like and and, you know it's just it's just indoctrination you know you don't really have a lot of room for fun when you're engulfed in, in like this darkness of hatred right like so fun takes a back seat most of the things we did for fun was drugs and hating on things, right? And and counter protests. Like we used to love to go to counter protests because there was a chance for violence. And you incite the violence without being the 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 aggressor, but you instigate so that when somebody retaliates, now you have full, you know, hey, Georgia's a stand your ground, self defense law. You know, you can mm-hmm. you can beat okay. the tar out of somebody, and that's what these groups do, man. Like you see, like these these white supremacist groups that go and they want to have a, a a presentation on the courthouse steps, right? They want to have a protest. Well, they know that nobody else in like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the rest of the country thinks they're disgusting and hates them. And they do it for that reason, because somebody in that crowd is going to say something, do something, pop something off, and then you're left with a Charlottesville. Then you're left hmm. with a, a Selma. Then you're left with uh, like all these different you know, riots and, and brawls that have happened because you have a, 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 a protest. Then you have somebody from a different group that's like, let's go counter-protest that. Show them that hmm. we don't believe in what they believe in. And they bank on that. You could not have white supremacy as strong as it is today without Antifa. They feed each other. It's a it's a pendulum. It'll swing back and then back to forth. You need the two poles, right? And if you look at it, like white supremacy was kind of down there for a while. Like there were still these out of pocket ass groups of like suburban white kids that were like, "Oh, we're Nazis," right? And like Jim Bob and 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 Wendell would would go and build crosses and and burn them in, in, in Grandma's backyard. Did you say when Jim Bob and Wendell? 
<laughs> yeah, with Jim Bob and Wendell, and uh, every now and then they let they let Jim Tom come around with them, right? But so I mean, the thing is, is when you started to see the rise of like Antifa's, you were also seeing the rise of white supremacy. They equally and opposite reflect each other, right? Like I mean, mm-hmm. the tensions between races. If you look back at like. I don't know. In the last decade, for sure, it's it's been like a steady climb, right? And and parallel to that steady climb of white supremacy has been the steady incline of this idea of Antifa, right? Like the and and right mm-hmm. beside that's been the steady climb of the, all the other extremist groups out there, right? And like I'm not afraid to name them all. Like, yeah, I was a member of, of a white supremacy group, and we're openly talking about that. But let's also talk about the Antifas, about the alphabet people, about the militia groups, about the, uh, you know, the, the ultra left groups that are out there. They all feed off of each other. And it reminds me of, of a, a line from A Bug's Life, right? When, when the two grasshoppers are fighting and he's like, it's just ants. They're ants. And he's like, when these stupid ants realize they outnumber us a thousand to one, our way of life is over. And you think about it, we're all the ants. And if they could keep us fighting amongst ourselves instead of focusing on the the open borders, the the overtaxation, the deficit, the GDP, the 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 help going all over the world except for here where we need it, like yeah, when we realize everything that's going on up there, their way of life is over. Hmm. And and it's 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 designed chaos and and fear monger. Wow. So when you joined the clan, you had to promise to submit to a physical beating is what you told us at the Q&A. And that was if you chose to leave. Um, You mentioned all that after the documentary. But you said you weren't worried about them killing you because they don't want to go to prison. So with that in mind, when that time came for your beating, when you were leaving, were you tempted to fight back at all? I mean, I, I did. I fought back with everything I had. It was just there was more of them. There was they 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 showed up to hand this down with with five other other grown men, you know. And uh, I, I don't care how bad or tough you are, you're not going to win that fight. And uh, you know, as luck had it, I didn't win that fight, and uh, hmm. I ended up with a broken collarbone, some broken ribs, a lot of you know cuts, bruises. Uh, you, I don't I don't know if you can see it, but my nose has been broken. Uh, it's okay. kind of curved a little bit, just slightly. Um, you know, I, I toted that that whipping, and uh, you know, I wasn't scared about the outcome. I mean, it was just something that I felt like I had to do. You know, I wasn't gonna look over my shoulder and wait for them to find me. I'm gonna I'm gonna come and we're gonna get this out of the way. So. Well, so what what would happen if you tried to report that to the police? Was that did that ever cross your mind? No, man, I ain't a snitch. <laughs> I mean, I, listen, that, you know, it has nothing to do with the, the 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 extremism aspect of it. Like, I grew up in the city, right? I, I the, the, we have a code, and like, look, the police are not my friend. Okay, I'm not going to call them. I'm not going to tell them anything. I wish to not participate in their investigations for anything. Uh, I don't not like them. I just 
don't want to be a part of it. You know, my kids, hey, y'all want to run up, shake hands and, and say hi to the police officers. Go ahead. I'm going to stand over here. I got nothing for them. Um, so it's I'm just, sure you uh, to the hospital. Yeah, what, what happened yeah, when you when, went to the hospital uh, for those injuries? A funny story. When I went to the hospital, the nurse asked me, she was like, oh, my God, what happened? And I was like, oh, man, we was out riding four wheelers, man. And uh, I, I wrecked my four wheeler. And, and, you know, I, I don't I don't remember how it happened. I just remember wrecking the four wheeler and getting up. And, you know, they, they brought me down here to the hospital. And she was like, it doesn't seem like a four wheeler accident. And I was like, that's, that's what it was, you know, and the law states that if you show up with bullet, bullet injuries or, or gunshot wounds or stabbing, like they have to notify the police. But if you're just beat to hell and you tell them that this is what happened, like they just want to get you seen and get you out of there. So, wow. Wow, that's pretty serious. So, yeah. When you joined the Klan, were there, or during the time you were a part of it, were there any parts of the Klan's doctrine that you rejected at the time, or were you all in? Uh, no, I would. I, there was a lot that I rejected. Um, you know, I, I had, like, you know, I, I, I talked about it at the the screening. Like I, we we understand that due to the molestation by the by the family member of the same sex. Like I grew up from the age of five on, with like this this hatred towards homosexuality, right? Because in my childlike mind, the developmental phase of my mind, my confirmation bias stated that this is what happened to me. This is how the world works. This is what's happening to other kids out there. And as I grew up, I just always had this like. Man, I'll cross the street to punch one of those people in the mouth kind of mentality, right? Like, I, I looked for the chances and the opportunities to be violent towards them. I was, like, strictly no tolerance for anything, like, homosexual or same. I didn't really have such a problem with, like, same-sex female couples, but I still didn't, like, just to be fair, like, I didn't like any of it, like, right? Um and then, you know, going through what I went through overseas, losing my comrade, uh, losing my battle buddy in the way that I did and under the circumstances, like that was the first time really that I ever felt the same hatred towards anything else besides like the homosexual community. And, uh, you know, I come out and, you know, I picked up the drug habit and, uh, Man, it was like a salad bar, right? Like, you don't eat everything on the salad bar. Like, nobody goes to Golden Corral because they love everything at Golden Corral. Like, I have, like, my, my top three things that I get when I'm there, and, like, I leave everything else. It's the same thing with these new extremist ideologies, right? Like, didn't care too much to have anything to do with, like, any kind of, like, anti-black propaganda. Like, I just didn't really care. Right. Like wasn't for me. Uh, you know, I had a lot of black friends that I served with. Like it, it just wasn't my thing. Right. I kind of was starting to like really buy into the anti-Semitism part of it. there, like in the middle. Um, but for the most part, man, like there was a lot of things that I rejected. Like I didn't I didn't like the fact that, you know, that it was so centered around like a Christian based ideology, right? Like this isogesic 
taking out of context stuff from the Bible, twisting it. Um, and, you know, I, I just... The parts of it that didn't make sense, I just didn't focus on. But to me, it was an open forum to hate Muslims, to hate homosexuals, to have all the drugs I wanted, all the extramarital affairs that I wanted to have. It was literally a lifestyle of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and and, and hate. Right? Like, I mean, and the hate was an extra compensatory for the trauma and the, the, the stuff that I was trying to cope with. So, I mean, so there have was. You made there peace was in, have you made peace it? in your mind with those groups? Oh, yeah, dude, totally. Um, like, in my mind, in my heart, and even to the fact, like, this is just like a little extra snippet. So, my kids' godparents are a same sex couple. And I actually went through the process of getting ordained so that I could perform their ceremony. Wow. Right? Like, like that, like, if anything happens to me and I can't raise my children, these two women are going to take my kids and raise them as their own. And I'm fully, fully confident and, and at peace with, with that. Um, and then you've seen the, the, the documentary with Dr. Kelly. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's like, he's one of my best friends, man. I, I look at him as a brother and our relationship is amazing. Like, I mean, like I don't have any biological brothers in my life, but you know, the universe in its infinite wisdom seen fit to give me not what I wanted, but exactly what I needed. And, uh, you know, I, I have a very, very great relationship with a lot of, you know, a, a lot of Muslim individuals. Uh, you know, I have a, a really good friend up in uh, uh, D.C., Imam Talib Sharif, uh, the First Nations Mosque over there in uh, D.C. Uh, you know, I, a movie Shake over in Toronto. I got the, the entire community of Clarkston is, is second family to me, man, like. You know, and, and I look back at the things that I used to say and do and how I used to believe. And and it pains me to know that the things that I said back then applied to the people who are some of the most important people in my life today. Hmm. Wow. You know? Wow. All right. The, the KKK seems to be a vestige of the past um, that some yeah. people, for instance, believe no longer exists. Obviously, they still do. Are there any other groups out there, more modern groups that are sort of new versions of the Klan and, and, and how dangerous are those groups? Yeah, so I do a lot of work with uh, certain government agencies that are invested in tracking and monitoring extremist twist turns and, and, and growth. Um you know, I've got some contacts at uh, the DHS that I work with. I have some contacts with, uh, you know, some some other other groups. And one of the groups that we're seeing, like, kind of on the climb right now, uh, especially in the south down here around Georgia and Tennessee, is uh, the GDL. And that stands for Goyam Defense League. And Goyam is like a derogatory term used for, for Jewish, right? Like, uh, it's very anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist. And so 
due to like what we talked about in the in the earlier in the interview, you know, I had FBI people that were like, "You've been on my desk a ton." You know, ADL, Southern Poverty Law—they're all over these like these KKK guys because they can't wear any hoods and masks, or they can't wear any facial coverings in public. So it's really easy to figure out who's who, who's what, and what's going on there, right? So because of some of the the unwanted negative doxing that's happening by groups like Antifa and, and these other groups that make it their whole thing to like to dox people. They're they're going underground, right? They're they're going underground and they're getting involved in this new group, which is like I want to call it KKK 2.0, right? They're abandoning the 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 robes and the traditions in public. They're not wearing the uniforms. They're not calling themselves the KKK, but they are the same people that are jumping ship to kind of blend in and disappear that are kind of bringing this new group up. Um, problem is that a lot of it's, – it's a blending pot of extremism. So you'll have neo-Nazi groups that are disbanding and kind of weaving in. You'll have KKK groups who are less violent, modernly less violent, right? Like over the last 20 years, 30 years, less violent, weaving in. And that's why those groups originally separated to begin with. You had groups that wanted to be very violent, very forceful and, and feared. Then you had guys that wanted to like not really be so violent themselves, but kind of work their way into politics, education, things like that. So they separated, but now they're blending back together. And it's making the group more violent. It's making the group more in your face. But the problem is, is that the advances that we've had in communications, like Telegram, Discord, 4chan, all those different WhatsApp that are all encrypted by individual phones. They have to be, you know, it's really hard to track these guys now. You know, it was really easy to track the dummy out there in a bed sheet, you know, waving a, a KKK flag up in the air, like, hey, follow him, figure out who he is. But the guy who's just kind of like there at the protest that's not really got an affiliation that you know of, like, it's so hard to track that guy. Um, and, and that's what makes that group so, so dangerous. And I think the other groups that I'm really focused on right now, besides that group, are these militia groups. And, and the reason that I'm really focused on the militia groups as a veteran, as a combat veteran, I know how easy it is to manipulate a few words in, in the, you know, the, the you know, our, our Bill of Rights, our Constitution, uh, you know, that will defend all enemies, foreign and domestic, and how easy it is to manipulate that domestic, Right. That domestic, oh, let me tell you what that domestic is. That domestic is the Democrat Party that's destroying this country, rotting it from the inside out, that's allowing communism to, to take hold, blah, blah, blah. Because I guarantee you Xi Jinping isn't telling his little boys to cut their wieners off. I guarantee you Putin ain't telling his little boy to cut their wieners off. Meanwhile, these guys are doing two to three hours of jujitsu before they ever go into class. They're teaching them to fight. And here we got TikTok telling little boys you might be a little girl if you want to be, right? Like this is like, – like that's how you do that. Those are the conversations you have with veterans, with service member family members, 
And that's how you get these guys to buy in. Meanwhile, you 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 still use the scapegoat proxy, right? But the problem with the with the militia groups are is there's a big gray area in the Constitution about militia groups, right? And when a militia group, for example, like for contextual reasons, January sixth was a was an awful day, right? It wasn't the type of of situation that everybody tries to make it out to be. It wasn't greater than 9-11. 9-11, there was over 5,000 people killed. January 6th, there was one, right? She was an unarmed Air Force pilot, Ashley Babbitt. I'll say her name every chance I get. The It wasn't worse than Pearl Harbor, right? It was... Scary because for the first time in our history, people stormed the Capitol to send a message. The message that they wanted to, to, to send wasn't the message that I received, though. The message I received was, imagine if these guys were pissed off enough to actually bring their weapons with them. How that day could have turned out. Like, that, there, there, was, there was nobody there to defend anybody. I mean, the cops just kind of backed out. They they knew. They saved their ass. They were like, hey, look, man, I, go on wherever you want to go, man. I got kids and a family to go to. You want me to open that door for you? There you go, buddy. Like, I ain't dying for this. Now, imagine if they really wanted to do harm. There was people there wearing body armor, ballistic vests, right? But I think that more so they were doing that to protect themselves from other stupid people. But if they, if those group of people that stormed the Capitol on January sixth had the notion, like it wouldn't have took long at all. Like I mean, imagine the the exponential loss of life that would happen. And and that's what scares me. Like we we look at how bad of a day that was, and it was awful. Don't don't. I'm not trying to take away how bad that day was. What I am trying to do is put into context. Just imagine. If these people were pissed off enough to say enough is enough. And I really feel like we're we're hitting a boiling point in this country. Right? Like if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. And here it is, like the country is almost split in half on a lot of issues. And and I think that some of the the lack of attention to those issues is gonna cause people to to do unthinkable things to each other. Wow. That's a lot to think about. It uh, is, you, you're talking it about really militia is. groups, militia groups, but have you worked directly with the military and law enforcement to help them understand what to look for with those within their ranks to sort of weed out bias and hatred and, and those kind of things? So I have done a lot of work with law enforcement. Law enforcement has been amazing. Specifically, I want to shout out the Aurora Police Department in Colorado. Like I, I had a... a Comrade Sammy Weeks, who was uh, an officer down there, and he was like, hey, man, you know, you created that trauma recovery program, and it's geared towards it more towards trauma and extremism. Like, do you think we could run that with, with police officers? So we got to talk, and, and we, you know, it's, it's really easy to see the, the connection between military and law enforcement. It's almost a seamless transition when you come out of the military. A lot of officers are veterans. Um 
And so what we started talking about was like the same thing that plagues veterans are plaguing police officers because they have more exposure to trauma for a longer period of time. It's, it's actually worse in the law enforcement community. And when I say worse, I'm talking about suicide, substance abuse, domestic violence, you know, things of that nature. So we kind of overhauled the program because it was geared more towards veterans and, and the military for law enforcement. We ran a pilot program with them and they loved it. I, I mean, we got amazing feedback and review from it. Uh, it was a really big success. The government, on the other hand, is a very emotional creature. They insulate themselves with miles and miles and miles of bureaucracy and red tape. I have personally reached out to the DOD, the Pentagon, the DHS. I have written letters to the president. I have spoke about this program in front of Congress at the House Veterans Affairs Committee, the second iteration of the House Veterans Affairs Committee that I was invited to testify at. All I ever get is a, hey, that's a really amazing program, man. We're really thankful you're doing that. Nobody wants to bring me in and even look at it. They want to try to policy it out because denial isn't just a river in Egypt. It's plausible deniability. Hey, we ain't got an extremism problem. We ain't, we ain't got that. We ain't got that. But you look at the rise in militia groups over the last 10 to 15 years, right? And it almost directly correlates with the rise of the the war in Afghanistan. 9-11 is our starting point. And then watch the rise of militia groups. And that's because of the propaganda. Hey, they're bringing Muslims over here. They're giving them all your benefits. You know, you went over there and fought and died for these people. And now look look at what they're giving them. They're, you're, you're sleeping outside on the streets homeless. And, and these guys are being pumped into to hotels and, and giving government assistance, blah, blah, blah. The just propaganda list goes on, right? But that that's a very sensitive subject, you know? And I would rather have 50 pissed off you know, regular civilians that I would two or three pissed off veterans. And the reason being is because the veteran is efficient at his violence. Hmm. He's, he's educated and competent in it. You know, these, these 10, 15 people, you know, somebody might pull out a gun and start shooting, but when the veteran does it, he's very calculated and efficient at what he's doing a very tactical So when I see these groups starting to kind of band together and form, there was a group here in Georgia that you can look up. It was called the uh, Georgia Georgia Defense uh, Group, uh, GD GD three, I think. Uh, It was a Georgia militia group, a three percenter group. Before anybody really knew what the three percenters was, now we know that the three percenters were behind the Gretchen Whitmer attempt to to like in in Michigan, the governor of Michigan. Yeah, the governor of Michigan. So these groups are dangerous, and they're very tactically proficient. And the problem is, is that all this military gear that they were using overseas and in the military, you can get on a military surplus store and buy it. You can buy, you know, the the encrypted walkies. You can you can buy the the body armor, the flak vest, and the rifles. And you don't think as a veteran, I know how to file my 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 firing pin down a little bit, go full auto. 
Hmm. I mean, like a, a, an AR, which we called an M4 in the military. Uh, I spent my entire military career with that rifle. I can take it apart, put it back together blindfolded. I can modify it. I, I was a level three armor. Like I can work on weapons. I'm not the only one. These guys know how to work on weapon systems. They know how to modify them. They know how to, to modify them under the radar. Right? And and it's wow. a very dangerous situation we find ourselves in. Wow. Wow. I wasn't scared when this started, but now I am. <laughs> this is this is some serious stuff here. Before we yeah. wind down this conversation, my last question for you is what can people look for if they think a friend or relative might be dabbling in the activities of hate groups? Oh, man, that, that's a laundry list. Uh, I'll pick the top five. Uh, they, they, a, a lot of times go unnoticed because they're so subtle. Um, and, you know, before before I, I you know get into that, I, I want to let you guys know that even though I'm not with Parents for Peace anymore, like they're still doing amazing work over there. And if they're curious at all, at the end of this, I'll give the the email, the okay. website, yes, the, the like number, that. all that, and uh, plug them. So, real quick, think about a, somebody who's getting involved in substance abuse, and and look at this as a, like a public health approach. The first thing you start to notice is some social changes, right? Maybe some avoidance. You know, I remember when I first smoked weed the first couple of times when I was younger, I avoided my parents. I didn't want to be around them. I'd go in the back door and slip upstairs and just hide from them. Right? I didn't want to look nobody in the eye. These are the these are the subtle changes you'll see. Clothing changes, like hey, you know, so and so used to wear you know this kind of clothing. Now all of a sudden, you're starting to notice some some tra- traditional stuff. I'm thinking of a, a specific case right now where an individual, you know, dressed like we did, come home and he decided that he wanted to convert to Islam. And he started to wear traditional Muslim attire, refused to shave, you know what I mean, grew his beard out, uh, started talking against Martin Luther King, and just started advocating against Christianity, talking about taking multiple wives, very fundamentalist ideas. Um, and, and so th- that's yeah. another thing to look for is those small changes towards you know, something that goes against what the normal is in the family. Am I saying that if somebody in the family decides that they want to convert to Islam, you should call the FBI? No, absolutely not. Right. It's normal for people to, at a certain age, kind of venture off and find their own own belief system, but pay attention to how that belief system changes them. Right. Uh, Look for the friends group that they associate with. Right. You know, look for the lack of a friends group that they associate with at this point. Um, If there's a reason, there's always a reason why they don't want you to meet their friends. Well, there's a reason for that. Obviously, they don't want you to meet their friends because they don't want you to see what kind of friends they're with. Um, Mm. As an extremist, I always knew what I was doing was was frowned upon and wrong. So I would hide that from people. Right. And and your loved ones will do the same thing. They'll they'll not want to expose you to that because they love and care about you. And and they'll start to hide that part of their life until it gets to a point to where they can no longer hide it. So now they start to try to push you away and, and look for that, too. So, I mean, if you 
if you start to, to kind of look at some of the, the beginning, the red flags for substance abuse, a lot of those transfer right over to extremism, radicalization. You know, if you're if you're, you know, 16, 17 year old son is going out in the woods for a week with a group of guys that you've never met to to do some some shooting, there's a good chance he might be getting recruited into a militia group. Hmm. Right. If if you're, you know, look for look for just like anything out of the normal. You know, I mean, like your your daughter decides that she wants to shave half of her head. And I know Myra's got half of her her shave, but she's nine and she decided that that's how she wanted to do it. If your seventeen year old <laughs> daughter comes home and she's got like the the white supremacist female haircut, maybe ask some questions. You know. See if see who they're talking to online, social media. Try to try to monitor some of that and listen to some of those conversations. The games, the gaming platforms and chats are are really bad for you know extremist recruitment and, and platforms too. So uh, that's just a, a handful. I mean, we could have a whole other podcast about what to watch for. <laughs> yeah, we may have to do that at some point. Well, um, that's those are all the questions I've got for today. Actually, those are all the questions I have time for. I've, I've got a lot more questions. I'm so, sure, Chris, man, I appreciate I'm you sure. joining me today. This is this has been yeah. a, an opportunity for you to be vulnerable and answer my questions and be open and honest. And I appreciate you doing that. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate you having me on and you know giving me the the opportunity and you know to to come on and, and address your listeners and you know maybe help them to to think about things, you know, I hope this, I hope that this conversation that we've had over these last two sessions have kind of opened some, some dialogue for them and, and maybe they can use what, what they've heard and maybe open an open a conversation with somebody that maybe they wouldn't have ordinarily done and, you know, practice that unconditional compassion that, that saved me from, from that lifestyle. That's a hope for we can have carrying over into 2024. So those, those oh, are some yeah. good words. So for happy sure. new year to you and your family and everyone out there who's listening to this, this um, episode. Let's make 2024 a more welcoming year for everyone. Let's do so it. Thanks again, Chris, for being here. Outstanding. All right, man. So that's it for today's episode. Please join us again next time for another great storytelling adventure. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Stories from Real Life with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.